Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day in a rather deserted city of Westminster, it must be said, as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Merceday Proctor. Merceday is the principal owner and managing director of Mercator Schools Limited, an institution offering English language courses and programmes for groups and individuals throughout the counties of Cornwall and Devon. Merceday, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you. It's, an it's a pleasure for me. It's a pleasure having you. Now, um, the purpose of these podcasts, as I say, is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership as a whole. So what I would like to understand first and foremost is really what that word leader actually means to you. Uh, the word leadership. Yes. So what does that word leader actually mean to you? Uh, well, I have come to learn more and more about it as throughout my career um, as a result of uh, leading this small organization. And what I would say it means to me now uh, is, um, above all, putting my customers first, their needs and um, requirements, why they come to our organization as a customer. Uh, and then uh, the needs of uh, um, our staff, people who help us in running the organization and um, offering the services for our customers. Uh, in terms of um, qualities and characteristics then of uh, our leadership, I would put honesty uh, at the top of uh, my agenda, honesty and clarity both to our customers and to our staff, as well as um, expression of the interest, if you like, the passion that I as a leader have for the kind of service we offer. Because I believe unless our staff know that I am truly involved with the activity that I offer and believe in it and like it, um, they are not going to feel that positive themselves and that motivated. I need to pass on the um, the interest in the field to the staff. So that's quite important for me. Um, also, I, I would like to think that I have a degree of humility in the way I approach uh, leadership mm. uh, in that I want to be open uh, to my staff, to their views, to their assessment of how things are done. I don't want to be seen as an autocrat. Um, I'd like to be seen as authoritative, as someone who knows uh, what what he or she is doing, um, because that, again, uh, instills confidence in staff and in, in, in the customers, in our case, students. Um, but um, nobody's perfect. Nobody has the final word, uh, you know, um, a monopoly to truth. So uh, a leader has to stay open to criticism and um, alternative views. Um, mm. Well, I think these are the principal um, the features for me. I think um, you raise a hugely important point there, Merceday, about um, being open to sort of feedback on uh, those views on leadership, I suppose, because there's a lot to be said for the fact that even being in leadership is still very much a learning curve, isn't it? No one leader is going to have all of the answers and is going to get everything exactly right. It's still very much a learning process and taking on board mistakes that might be made once or twice and then using that also to hone oneself and improve going forward. Exactly. And um, I think as well um, that when one is faced with uh, feedback and having to self-reflect on their own leadership style, you could say, I suppose, with the current COVID-19 situation that we are very much in a period of self-reflection right now. Um, that helps, doesn't it? I mean, it's important for a leader to recognise their own limitations and also understand that it's just as much about the people around them as it is about them individually, because without people around you, you're not really a leader of anything, are you as such? Well, um, yes and no. 
Um, yes, we don't have our students here um, now, uh, but um, we are still in touch with their leaders, with the agencies who would have been uh, booking their travel, their program with us, with their teachers, group leaders, the schools they're coming from. They have constantly been in touch with me and I've been working from home, uh, keep keeping them informed and and, and planning for post-COVID-19. And I think that highlights another really important um, aspect of being a leader, isn't it? And that's to maintain very, very good communication. And uh, that is hugely important, especially now when we're not working together in a more office-based environment and we are having to maintain contact from a distance with this um, advent of remote working that we're seeing at the moment. Indeed. I've also been in touch with our teachers who suddenly found themselves uh, not having anything to do uh, in um, uh, making them aware of uh, online teaching, for example, which uh, didn't exist in our organization before. And I've uh, sourced um, uh, various um, initiatives that have been on offer by the British Council, by Trinity College London, by English UK. All these organizations have been amazing in offering resources in no time at all. Um, so uh, we're now a small organization. At least five of our teachers have uh, upskilled themselves in this time in um, designing and offering online teaching as, a, uh, as an alternative, as something to add to our portfolio after COVID-19. And that's massive, isn't it? Because leaders have to be able to adapt and to innovate uh, because business is having to do that right now because it is being said at the moment that the way that we fundamentally work and the way that we do business, it's really going to change as a result of the current situation. And so businesses, organisations, they've got to be ready to adapt to that in order to make sure that they're ready for how the market environment is going to have altered. Indeed, absolutely. And it's been... Uh, quite an eye-opener, really, for me as a leader and for our teachers, uh, that they could be doing things differently. And do you think it's beneficial um, in one's development to have learning experiences like this? Because it is quite often said that times of adversity, such as the situation we're in now, often brings out the best in people, and you learn more when things are going a little bit more difficult than when things are going well sometimes. Absolutely, absolutely, it's beneficial. It it does bring out the best in people. In in um, thinking, wow, now uh, all all doors appear shut. How do I start opening them one by one? Mm, that is and that mm. find your inner resources that you weren't aware you had. I think that's absolutely right. And um, I think also what's really important, especially in um, a profession such as yours, uh, Mercer Day, where you're teaching people, um, it's important as a leader also to make sure that you inspire those around you as well. Um, are there any examples perhaps of people that you've encountered uh, within uh, your career who've maybe been an inspiration to you as a leader and had an impact on that style of leadership that you have taken on yourself? Um... Well, yes, quite a lot. I mean, we we work with quite a number of international organizations who are involved with educational travel as well as in English language teaching. And uh, I personally have learned all along different things from different from different organizations and leaders of those organizations. Uh, I, I must say, I, I, I became the leader of a business purely as an extension of an activity, which was my education and my passion. I didn't, to begin with, look at it as a business as such. Mm. I didn't have any business training. I didn't have an MBA. Uh, I had no um, skill in um uh, the, the administration of the business. But I was lucky enough in having two partners, co-directors in the business who were, who had the right skills in 
in accountancy, in, in taxation, in employment law. That was lucky. It was good that I had them, and I've learned from them quite a lot in in the running of this business. Um, uh, and uh, and yes, you wanted examples. I mean, are you thinking of something more more specific? Not necessarily. If there's maybe somebody who sort of strikes you as a certain figure, for example, that you may be taking inspiration from throughout your life and your career, then uh, do by all means and tell us who that might be. And that would also be quite interesting, I think, for those uh, tuning in. I think my examples would be more on the um, academic side Mm. of our work rather than the business side would that be okay that would be absolutely fine okay well i can name jane willis who is um now a semi-retired freelance teacher trainer but who's had a very long career with the british council um along with her husband dave willis both practitioners in english as a in teaching english as a foreign language writers of materials Um, connected with Aston University and and Birmingham University for many years. I met them in Iran, where where I originally come from, uh, in the days that they were um, working with the British Council in Tehran before uh, the revolution of uh, 1975. Um, And then here, when we all started... basically came to be residents in in the UK. Uh, Their style of um, uh, teaching methods and approach to work in their academics uh, massively have influenced me in designing methodology and um, running our courses, designing our courses and our methodology. Um, among among others, but I would name those um, very much my models. I think there's a lot to be said for uh, those um, examples um, uh, today because um, there are a lot of people out there who, when they think about their most um, sort of um, inspirational leaders, they name people like you have there who are necessarily who aren't necessarily people in the public eye their colleagues their mentors people um, of that sort of ilk and there's a lot to be said for that isn't there because when we think about leadership um, especially in the uh, the UK I think culturally there's a little bit of an association with people who are in the public eye such as politicians such as maybe sports personalities as well and sometimes we lose sight of the fact that a lot of really good leaders out there who are mentors who are people in the business world academic world who maybe just keep their heads down and get on with things they're not maybe recognised as much as they should be in some cases, are they? Well, yes, indeed, indeed. Although these people are quite well known in in the field, Jane is leading a seminar uh, on Wednesday. Actually, I'll be on an all-day online seminar um, uh, on Wednesday, put out from um, one of the universities. Sorry, I forget the name of the university, but. She will be running a seminar for teachers, for teacher trainers, basically. Mm. So she's retired, but she hasn't stopped working. And um, and she's still an inspiration. She still publishes. She still talks. She came and ran a workshop with our teachers here last May, uh, only only a year ago. Um, So, so yes, um, people like that um, are important to to us and how we, we run our activities. And we've mentioned as well that um, in your case, so when you were growing to become a leader in the business world, um, it was very much a case of learning and picking up certain skills and understanding how to uh, run a business day to day. But it was founded very much on your passion. And essentially, it was more of that side of things rather than finding it, founding the, uh, the company as a business, so to speak, at the beginning. If we think about that, example just for a moment Mercedes do you think that great leaders are born as great leaders or do you think they learn how to become great leaders throughout their lifetime I think more more the latter uh, I think they learn to become leaders uh, there may be some basic traits that um, uh, people have uh, for example, 
some people are um, fundamentally uh, more creative than others. Mm. Uh, some people are able to be more decisive, will know the, their mind more quickly than others. There are some basic characteristics, but none of those, un- unless you actually are in the job and do the job and face your own mistakes and learn from your own mistakes, I don't think you can become a leader until you make mistakes. Mm, because experience is one of the greatest teachers, isn't it, as well? Um, the experience of trying new I, things. Oh, very definitely, very definitely. Experience is, um, is everything. Um, I am not the person I was in 1987 when Mercator was founded, if you like, established, mm. registered as a company, started to recruit students from abroad and hiring teachers. I am not that person. Exactly. Experience, it does mould people. And I think um, if we do think about leaders as being people who can learn how to be very, very good leaders, experience is one of the greatest teachers, um, as we say there. And uh, if we think about... And if we do think about um, the uh, the future as well, um, and maybe those younger generations of uh, people who are aspiring to go into leadership roles themselves, um, if you will, uh, Mercedes, um, based upon the experience that you've had, what sort of advice would you give to that younger generation of people? Um, I would say um, find out what the tools of your trade are going to be what you what you're going to need and get as much education in um, theoretical terms about them uh, as much as you can um i said i never did an mba but i would advise to somebody who wants to be an a, a business leader to do actually to do an mba mm. But the MBA will not make them a business leader, but it will show them what the tools of the trades are so that they're equipped with the, with the basic knowledge and then be open to learn from your own mistakes, from people you come across who do things differently from you. Don't rule it out straight away um, because because their styles are different. Um and adapt and adjust as you go along, um, and uh, and you can't fail. Basically, uh, be open and clear with people. Do what you say, what you promise, what you put in the plan. Um, do it in the same way. If you have to change your mind, explain it. Um, don't let people guessing about you all the time. Come out and be proactive in letting them know your mind and your your plans for the future. I think there's a great deal to be said there, uh, Mercedes, for that transparency and that ability to really sort of hammer home the message that you want to give to people and make sure that people aren't just second guessing the direction that you're trying to uh, to take them in. And uh, if we continue to think about um, that sort of future direction before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today as well, um, do give me an idea of what you envision the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for Mercator. And also tell me about what you hope to achieve, not just within that time, but also when we begin to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic and your ambitions for beyond that too? Mm. Uh, well, um, I very much hope that, um, uh, I mean, we are a seasonal organisation and many our activities start around about February, March until November, December. Uh, a lot of our um uh, groups, uh, student groups who've had to cancel, we've lost all our business for this year, um, of course, because we are, all our students come from abroad. Um, but a lot of them have already booked for next year from February, March onwards. So I'm very much hoping that by then they uh, international travel will get back to normal and, and, um, We'll um, go ahead and uh, I mean do work as we have been doing. That's the minimum that I hope for. 
um, and, and, and I'm planning for. Um, but uh, in addition to that, um, having learned about online teaching as an alternative, um, I very much hope to be able to actually use it um, in our um, added to our portfolio, not just as an in, and as an additional method, but uh, integrated within our current um, activities. So, for example, um, we can do testing of our students before they arrive. We usually spend the first day of the start of any course on testing. Now, we could do this before they arrive, and that already saves one day of uh, their time here. And the teachers, it's, it's one, just one small thing that occurs to me uh, going forward. Absolutely right. Um, I think um, you make um, a lot of valid points uh, there, um, Mercedes. And um, I have to say, um, even though we are just about out of time on the uh, the program today, uh, looking to the future and we start to see things changing in the next few months, I think it would actually be really, really good for the listeners if we were to have you back on the air with us just to talk about how things are developing and also catch up on how Mercator is doing in the changing market environment too. Um, but for now, I have to say it's been a thoroughly insightful and also really enjoyable experience having you on the air to speak with me today and i can't thank you enough for taking the time to uh, come on the air with us for the benefit of the listeners it's been wonderful not at all scott and thank you very much to be for being such a good conversation partner oh uh, thank you ever so much emma today i really we, do wish you all the best that. program with the podcast yes thank you um, ever so much thank it's been a thank pleasure you. speaking to you bye bye for now Bye-bye. bye 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 that was Mercedes Proctor, the principal owner and managing director of Mercator Schools Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and of course the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett. And that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways 
of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more 
seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest uh, history and and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. 
I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, 
then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. 
What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.